I think there's still demand for treasuries, and I think there's still demand for uh, you know holding at least on the fixed income side that uh, asset class. And I do think yields will go up. I think uh, we've seen a lot of flow um, into the bond market on the buying of the treasury side, which is probably slightly um, uh, counterintuitive given the talk about inflation. But I think once that washes through, I would expect that yields will start to rise, um, and uh, that'll come through probably. You know, we still to target US 10-year towards 1.7, 1.75, I guess, over the, the coming months. Toby, thanks very much. Good to talk to you. That's Toby Lawson, the CEO of Society General India over in Sydney this week. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. In the markets in Australia, uh, the ASX 200 right now is up a third of a percent. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen a quarter of a percent. In South Korea, the Cosby is up also about a quarter of a percent. Uh, looks like it's going to be a pretty flattish open for the Hang Seng in an hour's time. In the commodities markets, uh, Brent crude oil is trading at $75.79 a barrel. Gold, that's at $1,777 an ounce. Thank you very much for listening this morning. Have a great weekend. Do please join me again on Monday morning. Back chat's coming up after the news with Hugh Chiverton and Danny Gittings. The weather forecast, sunny periods and one or two showers. It will be hot. Maximum temperature is going to be around 32 degrees. And the outlook is for it to be very hot during the day. Over the weekend, more showers early next week. And it's 30 degrees right now and 80% relative humidity. 8.31 and a half, here's Susan Lavender with the Half Hour News. New Secretary for Security Chris Tang says initial investigations indicate the stabbing of a policeman in Causeway Bay last night was a lone wolf terrorist attack. But speaking after visiting the injured policeman in hospital early this morning, Mr Tang said many other people should also hold themselves responsible for inciting hatred in Hong Kong. The assailant died shortly after the attack, as Carolyn Wright reports. The 50-year-old man is said to have stabbed himself in the chest after attacking the officer at about 10pm outside the Sogo department store. He died in hospital about an hour later. The police said the officer was seriously injured. The attack was caught on video with chaos ensuing immediately afterwards as other officers drew their guns before subduing the man. The motive for the attack is not known, but it came at the end of a day where thousands of police had sealed off nearby Victoria Park and were out in force in other parts of the city to stop any protests on the anniversary of the handover. Both the chief executive and her chief secretary, John Lee, have condemned the attack on the policeman, as well as other illegal acts that took place yesterday. Carrie Lam said it's clear they were intended to challenge the authority of the Hong Kong SAR. No new coronavirus infections have been found in the compulsory testing of some 580 people in a block of flats in Aberdeen. Robert Kemp has more. Port Centre was locked down overnight after one resident tested preliminary positive for a mutant strain of COVID-19. The Centre for Health Protection said the 41-year-old woman works as a part-time cleaner at the Bridal Tea House in Yaomate, a quarantine hotel. She has no recent travel history. Four imported COVID-19 cases were also reported yesterday. The patients aged between 19 and 54 arrived from the UK, Russia and Indonesia. President Biden says it's essential to find out what caused an apartment block in Miami to collapse last week. He also promised federal funding for the rescue effort would continue for a month. Mr Biden was speaking after meeting families of people who died or are still missing after the disaster in Surfside. There are two outstanding concerns. 
First, the remaining buildings may collapse. The remainder of the building may collapse. We need to determine if it's safe for first responders to return to the site to continue their rescue mission. That's being done right now. And that's why I asked the National Institute of Standards and Technology to investigate to see if it's safe to go back and what caused the building to collapse in the first place. 18 bodies have been recovered, but 140 people are still unaccounted for. The news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host today. Danny Gittings. Danny, good morning to you. Good morning. Today, 100 years of the Communist Party of China. General Secretary Xi Jinping announced yesterday China has realised the first centenary goal, building a moderately prosperous society in all respects. Quote, the CPC and the Chinese people, through tenacious struggle, have shown the world that China's national rejuvenation has become a historical inevitability, says President Xi. The CPC has united and led the Chinese people over the past hundred years for one ultimate theme, bringing about the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation. We will use Marxism to observe, understand and steer the trends of our times and continue to develop the Marxism of contemporary China and into the 20, and in the 21st century. So, from Mao Zedong to Xi Jinping, how has the party changed? What have been the successes and failures of the past century? Is it still communist? Where does it stand now and what's to come next for China? Let us know your thoughts you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or you can call us, and our number is 233 Quite a few uh, emails relating to uh, the departure of uh, Steve Vines, which was uh, announced uh, on Wednesday. Uh, we'll uh, read those uh, later in the programme, perhaps at the uh, end of the programme. Um, this morning on um, today's main topic uh, let's kick off with an email from uh, Bowen uh, which has been edited for length Bowen uh, which says uh, dear back chat if the birth and growth of the CCP has been China's response to the challenge posed to it by the West it should be admitted that the response has been successful to date what is debatable is whether it is now to the CCP's advantage to adopt a belligerent attitude towards Western countries as well as their political culture. The acronym CCP evokes negative images outside China because its methods and values are opposed to the political norms achieved in the West only after centuries of struggle. What can be said for the CCP is that the circumstances of national humiliation and helplessness in which the party grew up means it could not afford to be prudish about its methods and ideology. But the bullying and subjugation of China stopped a long time ago, and Western countries have done much since then to facilitate its growth. The challenge for the CCP in its next 50 years or more is whether it will be able to evolve to meet new challenges. Political parties in the West have sometimes evolved beyond recognition in their image and policies to survive. The chief advantages of a democratic system are that political parties are forced to change to satisfy changing needs, and when they run out of steam or ideas, there is a reserve team to take over without the need to resort to violence. There is no need to, for China to copy the West's democratic system in every detail, provided there is a real choice of candidates. Elections, for example, need only to be held, need only to be held in much longer intervals. In terms of representation, there is no need to allocate equal weight to all the regions of the country, or even to allocate it according to population density. But Western countries do enjoy certain significant advantages over China due to their having a democratic system, if only because no political party or regime has all of the luck all of the time. That's from Bowen. 
Mary says, clearly the future of China and Hong Kong will be bereft of any influence from its women. The all-male lineups on stage at both Beijing and Hong Kong celebrations were very telling. Mao's proclamation that women hold up half the sky has been jettisoned. The role of women in society is reduced to making babies. That many are not that eager to comply will inevitably engender negative sentiment towards females. Gender inequality, already pushed back by the impact of COVID, is about to deteriorate further. The gains of past decades have been wiped out as patriarchy is again in ascendancy. Hong Kong women do not appear to have grasped the implications of this trend. Perhaps its arrival has been too swift and subtle. That's from Mary. Once again, our email, backchat at rthk.hk. Our guests in the first half of the programme, we have David Zweig, uh, Director of Transnational China Consulting Limited, and Joseph Mahoney. Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics at East China Normal University in Shanghai. Uh, good morning, or I think good evening where you are. Um, uh, David Zweig, let's, let, let's go to you first. Um, some uh, quite uh, strident language from uh, Xi Jinping yesterday, wasn't there, in the, uh, in the celebration as saying that uh, um, crack their heads and spill blood at, of f foreign countries if they come after China. What did you make of that? Um, well, I, uh, I wasn't quite aware why, you know, so sure. I mean, it doesn't sound like confidence. Um, one would have thought that uh, China, I mean, it, it's sort of the, the, we've talked about this before, the, the sort of contradiction between what we see as a successful, pretty successful China. I mean, I thought, you know, when we talk about that, I, I think there's a lot of ways that uh, the CCP has been pretty successful. Um, uh, and we can talk more about that. But this sounds more like um, the leader of a state that's very worried um, and is threatening well, other was... states to, to stay away, to, you know, don't interfere in our domestic sovereignty and things like that. By all accounts, there was a lot of applause. That was the, seemed to be the most popular section of his speech. Well, it, it's not surprising. I mean, you know, the, the hawks are in ascendancy uh, in China right now. You know, when we talk about the future of the CCP or the, the past of the CCP, one of the characteristics has always been a struggle. I mean, in the Mao era, we used to call it a struggle between two lines. But, you know, in those days, it was sort of the so-called capitalist and, and socialist lines that um, wound up uh, fighting it out and having all kinds of political disruptions. But right now, we have a, a kind of hawk versus uh, more dovish view within China and the hawks. As we've talked about, you know, uh, Professor Mahoney and I have talked, you know, the hawks are in ascendancy. I mean, there's still a lot of voices saying, look, we're doing, in, you know, in China saying, let's back off from this hawkishness. But I think that's where she feels most comfortable. But again, put this in response to what was it? We have to have a better picture of ourselves. What was that, the speech a couple weeks ago? We have to talk, you know, nicely. We have to make friends. So... You know, Mao once said the world is full of contradictions, and I just think that the, this policy is uh, quite contradictory to what Xi had just said a little while ago. You mean the Communist Party thinks it's ready for another hundred years now? I mean, very few Communist parties <laughs> have sure survived as, as rule. Of course, they haven't ruled. They haven't ruled China for a hundred years, but uh, very few Communist parties have survived as ruling parties for, for as, as long as um, uh, um, as the CCP has. Right, but. But you could argue that one of the reasons, well, the, the parties that have lasted 
are parties that have really been able to indigenize, sort of make the communist system adapt the system to a certain extent to uh, traditional culture. Um, uh, and and this CCP has been uh, quite, uh, you know, quite amazing in terms of its ability to respond to crises. I mean, one of the things I sat down when you first invited me was I made a list of sort of positive, negative, um, and uh, sort of neutral uh, policies. And I mean, there's lots, particularly in the past, that were negative. Um, but if you look at the current policies, uh, there are, I think, financial issues that China faces um, and, and environmental issues. But if, you know, I made a list of things that one might include in an evaluation of could, could a we, government could we, or the, what, what, the parties. You don't want me to go into that. Well, no, give us go one ahead. of it. What about one of each? Give, give, us a, give us a pro, give us a con. Well, first, I, I said you have to do it domestically, right? You have to look at domestic versus external, right? So I would just say overall in a pretty good shape, uh, economic growth, military, leadership stable, scientific development, size of the economy, living standard, and, and one thing that people often um, uh, don't like to admit or liberals don't like, Westerners don't like to admit, popular support, right? Very high rates, the, the, the surveys show, um, that there's very popular, very strong popular support for the the CCP. So that comes together as a package. Um, uh, problems, uh, environment, uh, uh, healthcare is still trying to improve healthcare. Uh, if you look at the foreign policy, uh, they feel externally threatened. Uh, they don't have such great relations with the neighbors around them. Deng Xiaoping had a much better time and Jiang Zemin had a much better time in terms of foreign foreign relations um, and that's where the bullying I think comes in uh, to a problem to, to become a problem um, you know I, I think that uh, what I say so environment uh, okay, okay that's uh, so, sorry I thought you were looking at so like over a hundred years what would you say had been a you know a high point and a low point for the for the party some would argue that the, the, the high point is really uh, these days. These days, okay, is a, is a pretty good high point. Mm -hmm. um, though, though I would stress, and I think a lot of people writing about the hundredth anniversary, and Lord, there's a lot of people writing about it, would stress the negative side of Xi Jinping's um, uh, unwillingness to give up power after two terms. So, one of the key things that. The, the CCP was able to do, particularly under Deng, was to introduce a uh, transition of power, a peaceful transition of power uh, from group to group. And uh, that cease seems to have uh, created a problem which could in, in, in future become a bigger problem. Okay, and, 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 times for China, cultural revolution, mm -hmm. the famine, um, you know, uh, Tiananmen was... Uh, uh, not the high point, you know. Um, uh, those are all hmm. pretty pretty low. Uh, professor Mahoney, uh, Professor Mahoney, a professor of politics at uh, East China Normal University in Shanghai. Um, what did you make of Xi Jinping's remarks yesterday? This is reference to crack their heads and spill blood. Well, I, as usual, I do agree quite a bit with with uh, David. Uh, the, I think the only 
and I think he ended up coming around to a point that 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 I would have made in response to to something that I disagree with him in his initial comment, which is you know China does feel threatened uh, by external forces. Um, you know, there's the the concern of the U.S. trying to organize the Indo-Pacific, which some people argue that's uh, one of the factors that's emboldened. Um, um, the antagonism on the on the border with India, um, that there are other things happening under underwater, that uh, that uh, Trump and now uh, the Biden administration uh, broaching uh, Taiwan, talking you know, a long time talking about Hong Kong now, uh, trying to draw uh, South Korea and Japan into this new alliance, trying to reposition NATO. These are all these are all uh, really uh, discomforting uh, to to Beijing. On top of, of course, all the really awful things that were said during the Trump years, where China was targeted, where um, uh, Xi Jinping was targeted personally in, in a variety of ways, um, and then you know the allegations of genocide, which are uh, a bit fantastical. So uh, I think China does feel that it's in a very vulnerable position position uh, uh, in in certain terms. Uh, and at least in terms of public opinion or, or maybe even actual uh, threat. And again, I think you always have to recall that, that the biggest critics of the party in China itself are the Chinese nationalists. You know, those the people who worry that the party isn't um, um, responding um, uh, strongly enough to slights or external threats. And often what you see is that the party is trying to get ahead of that narrative and pull it back. And one of the things that we've seen with Xi Jinping uh, since he uh, took power is that he's a lot more adept uh, at speaking to uh, very specific um, um, uh, groups in China, very specific uh, interest groups. And he often has, you know, uh, sound bites that go out directly to certain people. And I think this is what makes it look like sometimes there are contradictions or contradictory messages because China is such a huge country, has so many different people and different interests and, and competing interests, uh, but he's become one of these people who communicates very directly uh, and tries to satisfy, to some extent, uh, people across a very broad spectrum. So um, I think that uh, the, 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 that comment was very much directed at the Chinese nationalists, but also Chinese people who are very frustrated with how they've been portrayed uh, over the past year and uh, the, the perception of a of this uh, uh, threat that's growing uh, overseas against China and, and China's rise. Well, let's turn to a little bit to the history then, because we're looking at 100 years. You know, high points and low points for you over the last 100 years? Of the party, well, you know, obviously the, the, the obviously the, the, the issues with with uh, the Great Leap, uh, where that really uh, they lost control of that, um, and then you know at least the, the first two years of the of the Cultural Revolution from '66 to '68, and then the crisis with uh, the Soviet Union in '69. However, I think the, the the two points to add to this is that I mean, we could start with 1921, but but really if we, if we get to 1927, uh, the party has encountered uh, existential crises uh, almost on a 10-year cycle uh, all the way up, okay, uh, give or take a year. And uh, uh, David mentioned this, but it's this, this 
deep um, uh, institutional capacity, it's part of the DNA of the party itself, to adapt itself to meet these crises. And, and the crisis can, can be of two sorts, either the crisis of modernity, which is you know, largely uh, in part the, the crisis of a technology gap and, and external powers exploiting that, or party, uh, problems within the party itself, uh, which is what we had in, in 2012 with corruption and, uh, you know, so the existential crisis of corruption. And that's where the party begins, you know, this major rectification campaign. So um, every 10 years or so, uh, we, we find that there are these tremendous crises uh, where, where the party is having to adapt either its national strategy or, or undergo some sort of major rectification campaign or both in order to move forward. Um, but the other thing that, that David talked about in terms of crisis, and, and I wrote about this in an article in Beijing Review um, a month or so ago, is I said that the, the party is inherently crisis-seeking. In other words, they, they are always asking themselves, in the old Marxist language, what is the primary contradiction and how can we, what do we need to be responding to and moving towards? Um, and in, in this sense, I don't think it's, crisis-seeking in the negative, but, but crisis-seeking in how do we resolve, how do we uh, make progress, because that's where our legitimacy lies, and that's where uh, we'll be able to achieve um, certain objectives. One thing I really wanted to know um, in all this was, was Xi Jinping thought. What, what's, what's that all about? I've yet to kind of find a coherent account of what, what, what it amounts to, except that it's, it's, um, it's very rhetorical. Um, is this just uh, some performative thing? Is it a cult item? Uh, what does it actually amount to? Does it make any difference? Uh, Xi Jinping thought, Joseph Mahoney. Well, it, it is part of a, a tradition, um, and every leader... Uh, they, they try to, because every leader, and you know, there's this tradition where they are uh, the center, right? Uh, and uh, you have uh, Mao Zedong thought, and then Deng Xiaoping theory, and then with uh, Jiang Zemin, you have the Sangadabiao, the three represents, and then, you know, with Hu Jintao. And each one manages to write their piece into the party constitution, and sometimes into the into the state constitution, and it becomes an organizing narrative that is then used to uh, bring everyone else uh, in line. Because this is, you know, as they say, uh, whether you like the first word or not, uh, democratic centralism, and you have to have that organizing narrative. But the other point is that there is there is a lot of boilerplate to this. You know what I mean? There's. Like it's, it's really interesting if you look at, uh, say, the Premier's work report every year at, at the NPC, or even a lot of what uh, Xi Jinping said yesterday, it's things that get repeated again and again. There are certain tropes, there are certain uh, idioms, there are certain things that, that belong to this sort of official party discourse that becomes a litany uh, of repetition. Uh, and what, what's the point of that? What, what's, uh, yeah, what's that, just, what's that for, uh, Professor Mahoney? I think part of it is uh, uh, continuity. Um, um, you know, I think that one of the one of the mistakes that was made uh, in the West is uh, was to imagine that there was a major rupture between Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping, and that China had had really you know taken a very a very different path. And even 
someone like David Harvey, who, who wrote his little history on neoliberalism, you know, had this sort of rogues gallery on the cover of, of Pinochet, Thatcher, Reagan, and Deng Xiaoping, right? And that was like the leftist point of view. But I think that if you look at certain things like uh, Mao Zedong's Three World Theory, which is a speech that Deng gave at the UN in 74 that, that Mao wrote for him, uh, and how instrumental that has been, not only in Deng's thought, but, but all the way up to the present, that part of these repetitions um, are connecting to these older narratives that are part of their historical legitimacy, the historical legitimacy of the party, but also uh, the legitimacy that they constantly renew mm. in terms of the goals that they articulate, uh, you know, for example, uh, uh, this year with the Shao Kong Shui, the moderately prosperous, or the next 100, where their, where their goal is to become a you know, fully modern, uh, developed socialist okay. nation. So, David Zwei? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that there's probably two, well, maybe in one sense three, but two, two key highlights to, to um, Xi Jinping thought. And the first is really the China dream. I mean, he came out with it right at the beginning. And he really tapped into the idea, tapped into so many things, the nationalism, the sense of humiliation, the future of China, the greatness of China. And, and in that sense, it becomes a mobilizer, as, as Professor Mahoney said, it becomes a mobilizing principle where people, you know, the, the party itself as an organization um, and party members have a goal. They have a mubiao, right? You, you give them a goal. Um, and, and Xi Jinping very much came in with that goal. Um, uh, he, he, um, the other thing, another thing that he feels is very important is governance. You know, and it's part of legitimacy. He did a book on it. He, he's written a lot about governance. He talks about governance at the local level, uh, even economic governance, if you want to talk about that. Um, uh, and, and in some ways, anti-corruption is part of good government. I mean, if you're not going to give people democracy, you better give them good government. You better make sure that they feel that the administration is doing a good job. So I would highlight those two things uh, as the essence of sort of uh, a Xi Jinping thought. Okay. Some uh, emails. Alan says, uh, we'll have a hundred speeches about how the CCP saved China, how it brought a, million pe a billion people out of poverty. That's debatable. Actually, most of that was due to pure capitalism, using Western investment and technology. But they must count against that 50 million dead from starvation due to the Great Leap Forward, a disaster caused by pure authoritarianism and fear. After Mao was safely dead, the CCP tried to reorganise, so absolute power did not reside in the chairman. In the last 10 years, she has reversed all that. He's made himself dictator for life, immune to criticism. So full steam ahead with Xi's great leap forward. Communism, the CCP is a party of power. Ideology is a pretext. The Chinese constitution is a fairy tale. That's uh, from uh, Alan. Vic says it's a sign of the standards of today's media or the lack of it. Just grabbing onto the head-bashing comments of the general secretary of the Communist Party. The event was for a captive audience. He's expected to play to the crowds. Media need to grow up or we'll lose trust and relevance. Sensationalism has to end! Exclamation mark. That's from uh, uh, Vic. Um, Mike says, how can you really judge popular support, as your speaker claims, uh, looking down the barrel of a gun? Uh, and uh, Emery says, while acknowledging China's efforts in limiting the effects of COVID and its rapid trade recovery, it's nevertheless failed to win over the majority of Hong Kong people through its heavy-handed and counterproductive approach in bringing Hong Kong to heel. The Chinese leadership would do well to heal Edmund Burke's 
uh, words, magnanimity in politics is not seldom, brackets invariably, the truest wisdom. Uh, unfortunately, the success of China in emerging from the COVID crisis, together with its trading and industrial success, has led to China's leadership suffering from excessive self-confidence, arrogance and pride. Burke again, the greater the power, the more dangerous the abuse. That comes from Emery's. David, sorry. Yeah, I want to... Um, uh, go back to a, a point Professor Mahoney made, um, which is, you know, one of the great things that I think has happened for China, but it's partly the leadership and then partly just historical circumstances, is the rise of China, right? I mean, just the the incredible, whether it's economic, military, but just the or GDP, whatever, but, but it's an amazing rise. It's historical. It's a historical change. And it was done in part because they were able to take advantage of globalization, um, but, uh, and that's not necessarily the party's leadership you know, role. But, but, but part of the point I'm making is that maybe China feels threatened, um, and I think they do. I've written that before, so I don't disagree with that. But part of that feeling of threat is just natural historical response, or natural response to the fact that it's rising. Right. So there are many countries around start to get very anxious about it. But on the other hand, you could talk about how is it rising? Right. What is the strategies? I mean, you know, the, 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 the threat to Taiwan, the dispute over the Senkaku Diaoyu, the, the, the South China Sea. I mean, they could rise in a more peaceful way, which is what, you know, originally they did. Mm. It's very hard to rise okay. and to rise at the speed. But, right. but mm. I think they could have done it a different way. So part of the hostility um, that they are experiencing is partly self-created. That's all. Okay, right. Well, we're going to take a break for the news uh, at nine and continue the discussion all the way through until 9.30. Uh, we're also going to be joined by uh, Joseph Cheng. The weather, sunny periods and one or two showers. It's going to be hot. Temperatures up to 32 degrees. The outlook very hot during the day over the weekend. And the readings at the moment, 30 Celsius with a relative humidity now of 80%. Welcome back. This is Backchat on a Friday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're looking back at 100 years of the Communist Party of China, CPC, a.k.a. CCP. Uh, take your pick of the uh, acronyms. Um, big celebrations uh, yesterday, of course, uh, in Beijing and uh, uh, speeches from, from uh, General Secretary uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, we're joined uh, in the first part of the programme by uh, Joseph Gregory Mahoney, Professor of Politics at East China Normal University in Shanghai, and uh, David Zweig. Uh, uh, who's Director of uh, Transnational China Consulting Limited. We're joined now by Joseph Cheng, former Professor of Politics at City University of Hong Kong. Um, some thoughts from listeners. On Facebook, Henry says, The centenary has great significance. It shows China's socialism with Chinese characteristics is the best ideology for the country. The people, the achievements of the country, shows the will, determination, character of Chinese CCP and its pursuit of their goals. The excellent achievements give cause for Chinese to feel great and have every confidence in meeting whatever challenges. Just as the world is changing every moment, the party and the leaders change their policies, taking into consideration challenges and paradigm shift. It's very successful in such and reflects the merits of its meritocracy system, where leaders have to work their way for several decades from grassroots levels. United around the party is important and one must not look at 
as such as blind loyalty. Chinese history is full of painful lessons where people are not united around the emperor or the president, e.g. warlords in the Republic of China days. Dynasties break up because of disunity, and we saw civil wars, refugees flood Southeast Asia, human trafficking of Chinese to America and other places to do the hardest work in building railroads. Chinese were discriminated, etc., etc. TC says, in the beginning, CPC provided a textbook example of how to undermine national security, in this case, that of the uh, Republic of China. The communist movement in China began with engaging with foreign forces when Russian communists spread the idea to China after the 1917 October Revolution. The CPC's first meeting in 21 would probably have not happened had the attendees not received financial assistance from Lenin's representatives from Comintern, which is, this is probably why the current Chinese government, as well as their supporters, are always wary of foreign influence in any opposition movements. The current ruling party of China started with the help of foreign influences. TC also says the biggest effect of communist rule in China is that it amplified the worst of what Chinese culture has to offer. The ideology of the PRC's early years is that of traditional Chinese values are are backward and bourgeois and should be replaced with communist values. But in 1978, the Chinese government realised that it could no longer use communist ideologies alone to continue its rule. Political movements like the anti-rightist movement and the Cultural Revolution promote a culture of mutual distrust among citizens and use the authorities to settle personal scores with the pretext of being rightists or counter-revolutionary. Uh, the PRC, after 1978, realised it couldn't, only, couldn't use only communist ideology to continue its one-party rule. Uh, while economic reform, reforms took care of livelihood issues, its byproduct is a serious dilemma in that it leaves mainland Chinese society without any moralistic bearings, uh, with getting rich by any means, without any legal, humanitarian nor environmental concerns, and then, if possible, immigrate to democracies like Canada. Look at the various tainted food scandals in the past 20 years. I think the West made a critical mistake in that an economically developed China and growing middle class would make the behaviour of its government and citizens more internationally acceptable, like Singapore, Japan or South Korea. But I think the past 20 years have proven otherwise. And Bruce simply says, we shall overcome. Uh, Jim says, the CCP reform and opening up has been are one of the greatest successes of the 21st century. National defence is the responsibility of all nations. The USA is a serious threat to the current peace and stability of the China people. An open warning that China will never again be destroyed by another country. Therefore, aggressors be warned. And uh, Paul in Taipo says the Chinese Communist Party is doing so well because for the most part communism is the ruling ethos of the world. For evidence of this, simply listen to the average person as he or she appeals to the room for common unity. Examples of this, uh, they will say, you know, when unsure of their point, they will start most points with I feel. Most people pursue the thought that we should concentrate on things we agree with and avoid disagreement. Of course, all three of these things are stupid. Destroying the truth to please a room is irresponsible. We should never put feelings above facts and truth has no unity with lies. As usual, I shall quote point 10A of the Earth Charter from the UN. It states, promote the equitable distribution of wealth within nations and among nations. World communism is the future, whether we like it or not. That's uh, from uh, Paul. Thanks very much indeed. A few uh, emails, as I mentioned earlier, about uh, Steve Vines. Uh, I'll get to those at the end of the programme. Okay, we're now joined by uh, Joseph Cheng. Joseph Cheng, a former professor of politics at City University of Hong Kong. Uh, Professor Cheng, uh, good uh, morning or good afternoon. Welcome back to Backchat. So what's your impression of Xi Jinping's speech yesterday and the various takes on it, whether it actually reflects a... um, 
more confident China or in those um, rather um, strong language he used uh, warning um, uh, foreign countries about what they might what China would do in its defense that uh, maybe it's a more defensive China well the context of course is to commemorate the centenary of the founding of the Chinese Communist Party uh, certainly Chinese leaders would like the people would like the Chinese nation to remember the contributions of the party, that the party led the people, led the Chinese nation uh, overcome imperialism, bureaucratic capitalism, and feudalism. And uh, certainly when China suffers from international setbacks, the leadership would like to appeal to nationalism, to patriotism, and this normally works strategy remains effective. So that is exactly why we hear that Xi Jinping warns other countries not to try to lecture on China, uh, not to bully China and so on. Uh, This is certainly the occasion to call for, uh, uh, to appeal to national pride. We understand, while we understand this appeal for nationalism and patriotism, patriotism, uh, at the same time, you also realize that in recent weeks, Chinese leaders would like to reveal this uh, external propaganda strategy. It wants to present a lovable, trustworthy, respectable image to the international community. And I think it, it is aware of the setbacks in terms of its image and international reputation. And within limits, uh, Chinese leaders are ready to make uh, attempts to improve uh, their image and that of China in the in the international community. So you don't think that that message you referred to that's been coming out in recent weeks about perhaps toning back some of the rhetoric of the wolf warriors, that's not affected by Xi Jinping's language yesterday and when he uses word, terms like uh, the, uh, the China will crack their heads and spill blood of other countries if they come after China... He's just sort of, uh, as Professor Mahoney was suggesting earlier, playing to a nationalistic audience within China. I agree. I agree. Uh, It depends on the occasion. Uh, When Chinese leaders talk to uh, Western government leaders, uh, they sometimes uh, will adopt a different tone. But uh, given the context, as I was saying, uh, to commemorate the contributions of the communists of China, Communist Party of China, certainly the emphasis uh, so far uh, is the, uh, the defeat of imperialism to allow Chinese people to enable Chinese people to stand up, uh, as was uh, Mao's famous statement on October the 1st, 1949. Uh, and certainly uh, Chinese leaders realized that uh, their efforts to improve China's international status, to raise China's international influence will contribute to the legitimacy of the leadership in the eyes of the uh, in the eyes of the people and uh, in times of setbacks in times of uh, deepening contradictions typically Chinese leaders would opt for a stronger stand rather than a more conciliatory position 
do, do, one of the comments uh, we had, uh, I'm not quite sure what it was, um, talked about the the, the role of uh, the, the meritocracy within within the CCP, uh, which is kind of interesting. And if you're looking at the reasons why and how, I guess, the party has managed to change and adapt over 100 years where there's been massive changes in, in, in society and, and technology and culture, one of the reasons might be, or one of the thoughts might be that, it, that it's actually been very pragmatic, that the the CCP has 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 not been sort of uh, bound by ideology, arguably less so than even the West. That it's responded very well to to situations, and if there's a problem, it's quite good at recognising the problem and doing whatever needs to be done to to solving that problem. And maybe that's due to the training, as the as the emailer suggested, or or, or something else. Do you think that's a one way to account for the uh, for the uh, for the uh, success or at least the longevity of the uh, of the Communist Party? Certainly so, especially in the era of modernization and opening to the external world. Uh, the approach towards modernization, the approach towards building a market economy since the end of 1978 uh, has certainly been remarkable. Uh, it demonstrates uh, substantial flexibility and pragmatism, and pragmatism more or less has been the hallmark uh, uh, for Chinese leaders since 1978. Uh, although there were eras like the Great Leap Forward, like the Cultural Revolution, when, ideologi- when ideology became paramount and uh, policies became totally uh, impracticable and the nation paid a very, very substantial price. But certainly since 1978, pragmatism is the key word. But at the same time, um, there are uh, occasions, especially in recent years, that Chinese leaders may like to uh, assume a considerably higher profile. Uh, and uh, in some instances, uh, this may arouse uh, suspicions and distrust on the part of Western countries especially and uh, certainly this high profile has resulted in in an attempt to reassess the nature of the Chinese Communist regime and a much greater reluctance to engage in various types of partnerships with China and as well as the transfer of high technology to China. Professor Mahoney, um, the... Yeah, David Zweig. Yeah. David, David, David Zweig first. David Zweig. I jump in. Um, uh, Hugh, Hugh you, were, you were tracking a point, and then you sort of seemed to shift away from it, which was the um, effectiveness uh, of the policies in terms of promoting people with talent within the system, right? And, and one could make the argument that, in fact, that's exactly what happened in China. You know, you want to get ahead... Uh, you, you have to develop, you have to find ways to create projects, to make economic development in your locality. If you do, otherwise, you don't get promoted. Um, if you do poorly, you don't necessarily get fired, but you don't get promoted. I mean, that was always one of the things that people found. Um, and so, you know, when you look at the people who have taken positions, congressmen in the United States, or presidents in the United States, in many cases, George Bush, 
um, uh, was a good example of that. People who are or Clinton, I mean, even so, they didn't necessarily have an awful lot of experience. These people have worked within a bureaucracy, have worked within the system for all their lives, by the, and, they, and they move up within the system. And there's just, there could be something really positive to that in terms of the success. Let's let's get Professor Mahoney's um, take on that. Professor Mahoney? Yeah, I think that uh, meritocracy has always been something that we've we've talked about, certainly since the Dung years. But I think think there are two or three points to make in in the context of several comments that have been made. And and the first is um, it's meritocracy, but it's meritocracy within... A, a, an extremely uh, well-organized um, party system that penetrates uh, almost every aspect of, of life. You know, if we if we differentiate the, the Chinese party, say, from the Soviet party, uh, the level of organizational um, uh, capacity far exceeds what the Soviets ever managed to achieve. And a lot of people in China understand that that began uh, with Mao, that Mao, that one of the geniuses of Mao um, uh, was this capacity for party organization, and likewise for identifying and um, uh, promoting uh, men of talent, in- including uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, and others. Um, so I think that um, that's the, the first part of, of what I would add to that. But the second part is, uh, and this is kind of a pet peeve, and I don't want to slip into sort of the professor discourse here, but, you know, there's one of the terms that we so often see attached to Deng Xiaoping and and Western narratives about him is that he's pragmatic, and that this pragmatism is in some way distinct from the the generations that came before. And I don't think that that's uh, entirely true uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, First, the word pragmatism is actually an Anglo-American principle um, that fits to a certain way of thinking, uh, but in a in a Chinese Marxist way of thinking, it's not pragmatism. In fact, when when Deng Xiaoping used the word pragmatic, he used it only to describe the Gang of Four, which is kind of an interesting uh, historical uh, footnote. Uh, but but the, in in the Chinese Marxist way of thinking, uh, the the correct term is. Um, uh, Praxis or praxological. In fact, if we really what about, what about the cats? The word. What, what about the famous cats, the black or white cats? Uh, I think that this is one of these uh, quotes that um, that uh, you know, like as, as uh, the, the the second guest was saying, you know, that there's or, or some maybe one of the, the people who wrote in that there's this tendency to seize on certain aspects, you know, the, the negative comment that, that many people in the West fixated on, uh, as opposed to all the positive. Um, I think that there's this tendency for us to, to in the West to really hyper-focus on that quote, as opposed to the hundreds of other quotes that where he's citing Mao Zedong or, or, or others uh, who uh, are, are saying something uh, very different. Uh, but there is... There is, but isn't there that is because the rest of it, as you no. say, is boilerplate? The rest of it is but, just sort of standard. And then... But the, the point that Dung was making just on that one was that he was saying that if agriculture, if, if the division of the collectives was a way to solve the famine, then we should do it, right? If it feeds the people, 
we should do it. And so in that sense, he was rejecting an ideological, an organizational structure that came out of Mao's own ideological views, which was to build the collectives. And because of the famine, he was saying it doesn't matter whether it's capitalism or socialism or whatever. If it feeds people, we do it. That sounds pretty pragmatic. Yeah. And, and, and that yeah, but, but also sorry, Joe Chang. Yeah, sorry. That also coincides with the famous uh, decision or statement on the part of Deng Xiaoping um, to avoid ideological debates, to avoid ideological controversies, and to concentrate on economic construction. While all this is certainly true, but there is also another hallmark so far, and this may well be dangerous, and this may well explain the reluctance to engage in the democratic reforms. Namely, the party refuses to entertain any erosion of its monopoly of political power, so much so that in, in the 1980s, Chinese leaders started to introduce elections of uh, cadres, active, uh, of, of activists at the village level. But this, never, this has never gone one step upwards to the town and township level, exactly because uh, cadres at that level or executives at that level be, becomes part of the cadre corps and Chinese leaders are reluctant to accept that cadres will have to face elections, will have to be tested at the, uh, by grassroots elections. And that is exactly why from the 1980s up to today, elections stay at the village level. It has never gone to the uh, town and township level. Um, and the, the other point about emphasis on education is certainly true. Uh, about 20 years ago, or a, a bit more, whenever we go to China, we notice that cadres at the county level uh, or even below, they tend to claim and then they tend to, be, to feel very proud to tell the visitors that, ah, I have now a master's degree, I have two master's degrees in public administration and law and so on. So that emphasis on, on education coincides very, very well of the Confucian tradition. And uh, this also uh, plays a very important role in balancing the traditional mass, uh, or, well, the traditional party line of emphasizing on class, class background, and, and especially um, the so-called princelings, the, uh, the red princes and princesses, and so on. So there is obviously a need and then, um, and the deliberate attempt to allow um, opportunities or upward social mobility for the ordinary cadres through the roots of education, through the roots of practical work at the grassroots level. And that is exactly why now cadres, um, after, after their university education, is now very, very much encouraged to go to the grassroots level and spend one or two years at the town and township level. Well, let's pick up on your, your reference to princelings, and maybe we, we go to um, Professor Mahoney. I, we've been talking about meritocracy in China, but there's an alternative uh, way of analysing the way you rise to power in China. You rise to power in China because of who your father was. And look at Xi Jinping himself. He, he's a princeling. There's so many others in the leadership of China because, who, are, who are descendants of um, revolutionary families. 
can we really say it, it's about the meritocracy as opposed to having the right parents? Oh, I think it is very much a meritocracy. You know, the fact of the matter is, uh, one of the very worst things that can happen to you in China in terms of your political career is to broadcast your ambition. And if you are a princeling, the assumption is that you will be aiming for the highest office. And if we look at, at a lot of the princelings, uh, they stay out of politics. They, they make their money on corporate boards or through other guanxi relations, okay? Uh, so so in, in a sense, one can say that, that being a princeling marks you. And I think one of the things that, that, uh, that we should start to recognize, and, and I'm not saying this as a, as a salute to Xi Jinping, but he is very, very capable pol uh, politically. In other words, he, if you go back and look at how he outflanked uh, the two main factions, um, and, you know, before he took power, we were worried that he was going to be a glad-handing candidate and that we would continue to have that factionalism and gridlock and corruption. And instead, he outflanked both. He's disciplined the party, for better or for worse. However you view that uh, normatively, um, he has... And, and you go back to, to how he outflanked his main competition at that time, uh, who was another princeling, you know. So I don't think that uh, just because you're a princeling doesn't mean that you're necessarily uh, going to make it to the top of politics. In fact, uh, quite the opposite um, is, is more likely. Well, isn't it? Uh, I beg to disagree, though. Uh, I think after the after the uh, Tiananmen Square incident, there was this famous statement by Chen Yun, and very very often quoted by princelings, that um, the party, the power of the party, must remain in the hands of revolution cutters and their descendants. And there are a lot of gossips and, uh, in China among leaders, among cutters, that Hu Jintao uh, was very much regarded as just uh, a, a guardian, uh, a guanzha, uh, uh, a, a manager serving the revolutionary cutters and, and their descendants. And uh, even when you talk about making money, Certainly, uh, Guangxi uh, makes a lot of difference, and you can just easily trace uh, the, the well, the very rich people in China, and you go to their, and you can trace their family backgrounds, and it is undeniable that a lot of these the top revolutionary leaders and their families, uh, they they have made a lot, a lot of money. But at the same time, Zhou Cheng, China is not anything like a family dynasty like North Korea, and um, you hear ordinary Chinese actually quite contemptuous of North Korea, aren't they? So, well, at the top of weight, uh, David Sai. About ten years, yeah, but one point about ten years ago, people were talking about the four hundred families. I remember I gave, uh, I was at the party school. Um, it must have been about nineteen, about twenty eleven or something, maybe a little before that. And at that time, there was a lot of discussion that uh, China was run by uh, about 400 families. These were Chinese talking about that. Can I take us back, though, to one thing that I think we need to... I want, I, I, so this is something I wanted to say, which is, and I agree with, you know, there's a lot of negative... I mean, the Communist Party has done a lot of bad stuff. There's no doubt, and I think we all recognize that on this panel. Um, but think about it, right? Think about it. Sometime around 1921, maybe 11, 12, 13 people got together uh, uh, in Shanghai. And from that point on, through all kinds...
kinds of difficulties. You know, the, the getting massacred in 27, the, you know, the long march, the, all, you know, where are we now? We're talking about a party that has 91 million, what is it, 91, 92 million people, one-seventh of the population of the largest country in the world. Yeah, I think, I think he said amazing, today, or yesterday, with, with, he said 95 million. <laughs> okay, 95 million, with a huge economy, yeah. let me just finish, with a huge economy, right, that is going out into the world, and, you know, with Belt and Road and all of this, so in many ways, we can disagree with, you know, I have lots of friends who would say, I'm a, you know, I have to say more about the evils of, of the CCP when I have a chance. But if you think about it historically in the great sweep of history, I mean, that's quite amazing that these 12, 13, whatever number of people got together 100 years ago. And look where they are now. Or look where China is now. That's pretty remarkable. All right, a couple of comments to uh, finish off. James says, how many Chinese communists does it take to change a light bulb? A committee uh, seemed appropriate. Carrie was wearing her off-the-rack pink outfit in, yesterday in Peking, dated and faded. Let's hope Backchat is on air on Monday. Uh, that's the plan. James, thanks very much indeed uh, for that. And Bowen says, I do not doubt that the CCP is able to make changes in its policies when confronted with new challenges. The problem is that sometimes their policies, new or otherwise, are wrong, as is inevitable in politics. The present antagonism generated in the West collectively could be an example. The wider problem with Chinese cultural practice has been that when things go wrong politically, the entire nation is forced to live with the consequences for unduly long periods until the authorities come round to making the right choice of policies. That situation is simply dictated to the people on the excuse of patriotism and loyalty. Of course, if the ruling elite fails to improve, the regime will be eventually thrown out by violence, but that necessitates an unduly long period of suffering and regime change, and unavoidably also brings much bloodshed under such a political system. That's from Bowen. Many thanks to our guests this morning, to uh, David Zweig, Director of Transnational China Consulting Limited, to Joseph Gregory Mahoney, a Professor of Politics at East China Normal University in Shanghai, and Joseph Chang, former professor of politics at the City University of Hong Kong. Uh, as promised, um, this is what people made of Steve Vine's uh, departure from this programme uh, last week, in no particular order. Uh, Vic says, I am one of the listeners who was sceptical about Steve Vines joining the Backchat team, thought he was learning the ropes and toning down his aggression, still quite shocked by his sudden announcement. It's a bittersweet feeling, bitter that he couldn't last, and sweet that resulting from his departure, the life of Backchat may be prolonged. Keep the flag flying. That's from uh, Vic. Uh, Derek says, I will miss Steve Vine's voice on RTHK, but I totally understand the reasons for his departure. I would just like to thank Steve for his many years of speaking truth to power on Morning Brew and on Backchat and hope that he can continue to do so elsewhere. That's uh, from uh, Derek. Uh, will says, with Steve Vines having to decide voluntarily, question mark, exit the stage and heads at RTHK rolling more frequently than ever, may I suggest a Backchat makeover of a different kind? Your co-host Nixie Lamb seems to have a little to offer except the odd giggle, so maybe it's time for more transformational HR changes at RTHK. But who could fill Thursday's pro-Beijing slot? If the co-host's job is, in Hugh's words, to spice things up, then could that person be Grenville Cross? While I frequently disagree with Mr Cross, he is undoubtedly an extremely erudite and opinionated individual who would guarantee lively discussions, which is what a programme such as Backchat needs in order to thrive. Goodbye, Nixie, and hello, Grenville. 
Peter says, by making Steve Vine's resignation one of the lead news stories on Wednesday, praising him as a veteran journalist, RTHK again leaves its audience with a very narrow, single-minded perspective. The headline to RTHK News should have read, Goodbye, Steve Vines. Steve Vines, the white, privileged, anti-China colonial relic, who wrote a book titled Hong Kong, China's New Colony, in 98, a year after the handover, in order to smear Hong Kong's return to the motherland, who never had a single positive word to say about mainland China, the CPC or SAR government, finally calls it quits at RTHK out of worry that the national security law will stop him from further abusing a Hong Kong government-funded public broadcaster as a platform for his personal anti-China propaganda. That's from uh, Peter. A KLC says, I applaud Steve Vine's inquisitive asking. Sometimes it's a bit confrontational, but well organised. It's a smart move for his quitting. Otherwise, I believe he'll be forced to later. Yes, it's the end of RTHK at this particular juncture of time. Sad. Um, a comment here from Kim, who says, Friends tell me that our Steve Vines resigned on your show. I'm sorry to learn he's lost this decade-long opportunity using Morning Brew and this show to treat RTHK, a public broadcaster funded by taxpayers, as his personal propaganda channel. The abuse is obvious to me, and this abuse has been tolerated for a very long time, and Vines is not the only one treating listeners as a captive audience for his personal political agenda. This type of rhetoric is more suited for a personal blog or personal YouTube channel. My advice to him is that if some people don't agree with him on China and Hong Kong, they simply won't, even if he repeats the same old lines a hundred times on your show. They won't even if people like him threaten to block the roads or incite or support those who do the dirty work of terrorising innocent citizens. Um, Bob says, good riddance to bad rubbish. Have you ever had the to- How you ever had the temerity to have him on back chat is beyond me. Just listen to his on-air response to one of the final emails you read on the NSL. Uh, to quote another child yes check it yourself as i did twice this comment shows up steve vine's real character and he likes to portray himself as a mature commentator uh juanita says thanks for the uh, interesting often controversial discussions on current affairs aired on back chat i'm a daily listener i particularly enjoyed steve's no-nonsense approach and miss his weekly chat on the radio and now very sorry to hear he will no longer have a voice on rthk but totally understandable given his political views and not shying away from his truth. I do, however, wish to point out the number of times you uh, uh, uh is very annoying as it interrupts the flow of your comments, questions, etc. Please try and refrain from this bad habit. It's quite a relief when you read an email or message when there are no interruptions. Uh, comes uh, from uh, Winita. Yes, guilty. Sorry about that. I beg your pardon. CW says, really sad to hear Steve Isers leaving RTHK. Thanks for your excellent contribution. Times they are a-changing. And Jay says, very sad that our man Steve Isers left his fans will miss him perhaps you can give him his own show again maybe you can get michael chigani to take his spot he's good at asking dirty questions that comes from jay thank you very much indeed danny thank you very much uh here's the weather sunny periods and one or two showers it's going to be hot temperatures up to 32 degrees the outlook very hot during the day over the weekend more showers early next week we'll be back on monday 30 celsius now